You're listening to Sermon Audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. To check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. Good evening, everybody. Uh, welcome to our Good Friday service. I hope your week has gone well, and, and I hope you guys are uh, having a peaceful evening, a relaxing evening, and I hope that tonight is an encouragement to you and that um, you find this, uh, find the worship that we've already uh, partook in and even the message that we're about to hear as an encouragement to you. We're going to be in the book of Matthew, chapter 27, verses 32 through 61 this evening, and we're going to be hitting on the death of Jesus. But I'm going to title this this passage in particular, The Departing Glory of God. The Departing Glory of God. And why do I come to that? Well, when you read the Bible, you see in the Old Testament, the, the people of Israel surrounding really two different types of uh, worship uh, centers, if you will. The first is the tabernacle. The tabernacle was built as this portable worship unit um, out in the wilderness, and then you have later on the temple, which was the, the permanent worship place of God located in Jerusalem. But in both of those uh, facilities, if you will, you see that the people of God built those worship centers and then God would come down and he would dwell among his people. His glory would cover the tabernacle. His glory would cover the temple. And in response to this, Israel would fall on bended knee and worship God. These are beautiful pictures in the Old Testament of when uh, God's people came together almost as one man, it would say, and just worshiped him. And so we fast forward to the New Testament and the Gospel of John clues us in in his kind of cosmic Christmas story of Jesus coming in as the word, the word made flesh. But as he comes in, he is seen as the full radiant glory of God. That Jesus, as John says, dwelt among us, meaning he tabernacled among us. That the glory of God once again has come among us. And you see, but not only do we have these beautiful stories of God's glory coming among us in the scriptures, but we also have these sad stories, even from the Old Testament and unto now, where God's glory would be among his people for a time and then at some point, it would depart. And that would come after a long strand of disobedience and following after false gods and and breaking covenantal promises with, with God, where God would remove his presence from among the people and allow them to just go on in their sin. And we see that same sort of story today. And sadly, again, when Jesus comes, Jesus has come, his glory has come upon his people. But then here at the cross, we see really once again, the departing glory of God. But this story is unique. It's different. It's different in that not only will God's glory depart at the cross, if you will, but he has every intention of coming back and to never depart from his people again. And so the departing glory of God up to this point, chapter 26 up to chapter 27, Jesus has been arrested. He had the Passover meal with the disciples. He's been arrested. He's been scourged. He's been mocked. He's been charged with 
with these crimes that he has not committed. And now we find him carrying his cross up to Golgotha. And along the way, he has someone help him. And so when we get to this point in the story, what we start to see is Jesus being brutally punished. But more than that, it is our rage as a sinful humanity coming out against him. And so we see, as we pick up in this story in verse 32, our rage against the dwelling glory of God. So follow with me. Matthew 27, verse 32. He was being led away to be crucified. And as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene. His name was Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means a place of skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Our rage against the dwelling glory of God. So here we have the crowd. The crowd is mocking Jesus. They're essentially, to sum up everything they're saying, they're, they're claiming to have the market, market cornered on salvation and what it means to be the Messiah and what the Messiah is supposed to do. Hey, if you're the king of the Jews, come down and save yourself. Hey, if you're really the son of God, if God has found favor in you, then he will rescue you. And so they, they kind of tease at him, they mock at him, and they, they question really that he is the Messiah. And they put, they put the test to him, but Jesus hangs there and he's essentially quiet and he's enduring the shame. He's enduring the shame of the cross because he knows what is necessary for salvation. He knows what it is that he must do as the Messiah. And ultimately, he must die. You know, like the crowd, we often look at God and we say, you know, a loving God doesn't allow a pandemic to occur. You know, if you're the son of God, Jesus, then end the pandemic. Make it end right away. And then once you do, then I will believe in you. It's a silly thing to say. We all say it. We, we often do. We question God. But the question is, do we think or do you think that God really owes you something? Is there something that God owes you? Do you think God needs to bend to your idea of what safety is, of what is right, of what is good, of what is loving? You may have, you may have noticed that God has not answered your prayer to end the pandemic instantly. It's still going. It's still moving. I think we, like Jesus, we need to endure. We need to endure. And I understand 
we're comparing apples and oranges here as far as the suffering of the cross and the affliction of a situation right now. But suffering and affliction have a goal. They have an aim in life. We think we understand love and, and mercy better than God does. So we, we ultimately shake our fist at him when suffering comes. So what we need to do instead is ask then how our afflictions, how our suffering might be working for his glory and our good. Think of a time maybe when you were a kid or maybe you're a parent right now with children and you ask your kids to do things and you, and you tell them, hey, you need to do these chores or you need to do these responsibilities. And they're always asking, why do I need to do it? Why do I need to do it? And eventually as a parent, you just say, look, I don't need to explain anything. Just do it. And at some point, they will grow up and eventually a light bulb goes off. And they say, ah, that's why you had me do that one thing, whatever it is. And so the kids just need to trust us, right? I would say in a similar way, we just need to trust the Father. That the Father in heaven is, is calling us to just simply trust in Him and to not try to figure everything out. We don't have to understand everything right now. Romans 5 reminds us that suffering is a glory-producing agent. It's doing something in us. And, and why? It, it does something because, like fire to metal, it removes the dross. It removes the impurities of this life. Aff- affliction really strips us down to a helpless state and forces us to come to grips with our mortality and, Lord willing, forces us to not look to ourselves, but to look to God, someone who is beyond us. Jesus endured the cross because he knew what the crowd needed. The crowd, which is really you and me, were mocking him and angry at him, spitting upon him. But he knew it wasn't time to just come down off the cross and just unleash fury. He had to endure the cross because he had to change their hearts. And so use this time of affliction to be a time where the cross, or excuse me, where the dross of your life, the impurities of your life, are stripped and removed, and then God shows you what it is that you actually need most. In other words, use this time to look to God, not to question Him. And unfortunately, many of us have a poor view of God, of who He is and what it is that He's doing. And because of this, we rage against God. And this is exactly what the crowd is doing towards Jesus as he's hanging on the cross. It would be expected then, if God's people are raging against him, then that God would probably turn back and pour out his rage, his wrath against the people. But he doesn't. Instead, we see the rage of God, the rage of the Father, not be poured out onto his people, but poured out onto the one who is the dwelling glory of God, that is Jesus himself. So read with me verses 45 through 56. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma, sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, 
filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly this was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. It seems in this story that Jesus should turn to the crowd and just unleash the wrath. Right? I mean, think about if you were put in this position where you had all this power, all this authority, and you were being punished for something you never, a crime you never committed, you and I would want to enact vengeance. Right? We would want people to feel what it is we're feeling but jesus doesn't do that in fact he does the opposite instead of turning to the people he humbly turns to the father he cites a psalm of david psalm 22 when he says my god my god why have you forsaken me you know in our western minds we we often think and look at that verse and we think man jesus is on the cross and he is He is really upset with the Father. He's upset with God. And it looks like their relationship is not really going very well right now. But that's not at all what's going on. If you go to David's psalm, Psalm 22, it's a messianic psalm. But David, David, though king of Israel, suffered, uh, endured much affliction, had relational turmoil going on in his life. And so this psalm was really a lament in a lot of ways. God, you're allowing me to suffer. You're not stopping the pain from happening is essentially what happens. But if you continue reading in Psalm 22 and see it in its entirety, in its context, David wraps it up with a beautiful bow of saying, I will praise the Lord. And so even in the affliction, even in real human emotion saying, God, please just let this suffering stop he still turns to god saying i praise you so jesus in the same spirit in the same manner because understand he is both god and man he is literally dying on the cross he's in excruciating pain and he's crying out to the father i am suffering i am hurting allow this pain to stop but in the same way i will only praise you and so often we can look at this as though like the father is looking down at the son and he's just got his feet kicked up and he's just watching this as though it's it's pleasing to him but i would i would say as much as jesus is sitting here having to endure the cross the father is in heaven having to endure watching his son his only son the one whom he loves and is well pleased die on a cross And look, there's the work of Jesus on the cross. But understand, at the same time that Jesus is dying on the cross, the Father is at work. And He's at work in this way. All the wrath, 
all the anger, all the holy fury of God that is to be poured out onto sin, that is to be poured out onto me, onto you, onto all of humanity, is being poured out in this moment onto his own son, Jesus. So not only is Jesus following through by going to the cross and drinking down the cup of fury and the wrath of God, but the Father is also actively pouring out His wrath onto the Son. And so this is a powerful moment in the time of Jesus' death on the cross. And this is, look, the people standing around Him weren't sitting there saying, okay, Jesus just cited this psalm from David. He must be questioning God and upset with God. No, that's not the response. If you notice the response, it says, is he calling Elijah? Hey guys, hold on, wait a minute. Let's see, is Elijah going to come and save him? And why would they go that route? You see, the Jews knew who Elijah was, this great prophet of God. Elijah never saw the grave and God took him up. But it was promised by Old Testament prophets that Elijah would come back. And he would come back, and when he comes back, he will prepare the way for the Lord. Like a forerunner coming to a city saying, prepare, behold, the king is coming. And so the people are standing there looking at the cross, hearing Jesus say this, saying, oh, maybe Elijah is going to come and show us that this truly is the Messiah. Or maybe he will save Jesus and we will see we were wrong. But once again, the people's theology was all messed up. They, they continued to misunderstand what God was doing all along. Jesus told them three years prior that the Elijah had come. And his name was John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the fulfillment of that prophecy that Elijah would come. That this forerunner would come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And so Jesus was among them. The Messiah was there. The kingdom of God was at hand. But their sin, sinful, deadened hearts were blinding them to the truth that was literally hanging right in front of them. And so instead of Elijah coming down and swooping in and saving the day and pulling Jesus off the cross, Jesus dies. And so we see that here it is, the departing glory of God. I mean, the fullness of the glory of God was dwelling among them, walking and breathing and talking and living among God's people. And then all of a sudden, he's gone. And when it says he yielded up his spirit, it doesn't mean that he forsook dying and that he just kind of jumped ship before he actually died. No, it literally means that he died. He took his last breath. His heart stopped beating. His lungs stopped breathing air. The king, the savior, the son of God died. And then something cosmic happens. The temple curtain splits in two. The earth shakes. The rocks split. The temple, the the very place where the, the dwelling glory of God would reside, was now being shook up and torn into pieces. The the holy of holies, the place where only the glory of God dwelt, only the, the high priest could enter once a year, was now tore wide open. It's as though God is telling everybody, I'm gone, I'm not here anymore, but the game is going to change. And so all of creation, including the dead, that parenthetical note about the dead saints coming back to life and walking into the city after the resurrection, even the dead testified to the reality that there was power in 
the death of Jesus on the cross. And so that gave reason. And why wouldn't it? To question everything. And that's why you see the centurion saying, truly, this was the Son of God. So Jesus comes as the full radiant glory of God. The same glory that descended upon the tabernacle. The same glory that descended upon the temple. And now, just like before, the glory departs. Departs from the people. Departs from the temple. Departs from Jerusalem. Suffering opens our eyes because it reminds us that we are broken people. Seeing Jesus suffer and die on the cross reminds us of how big of a problem our sinful hearts really are. Let's, again, look at the current worldwide problem. Not as a reason to question God or become fearful or angry, but as an opportunity for us to long for the return of the glory of God. Jesus died. The glory departed. And there are many who are standing beside him that are missing him, wanting their best friend back again. And granted, we know how the story goes. We live on the other side of the resurrection. We know that he comes back and we know that his spirit is poured out upon his people and that that glory now resides within us by faith. But it, that doesn't even that's not even the end of our story. There's a glory that we are still longing to see, that we are still longing to experience, to enjoy forever. And it is not here. So let's hope for the day that we can go out again. Let's hope for the day that we can work again, that we can go play again, that we can see each other again. But more than that, let's use this time to grow deeper in our longing to die to our sin and to live for him and really to behold his face, to behold his glory. So in this time, don't grow weary or of, or of long face, but instead cling to the promise that Jesus said he will come back. And this is the hope that we have, that the departing glory of God will return. Come with me to the final verses, verses 57 through 61. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. So the death and the burial of Jesus comes as a fulfillment of Scripture. We see in Isaiah 53, 9, that it is prophesied that the Messiah will be buried in a rich man's tomb, a tomb that no one has ever laid in before. And so kind of like entering stage left, we have this man named Joseph from Arimathea, and we're just kind of blindsided by him. He's not one of the 12 disciples, but he's considered a disciple. He does appear in all three. He appears in three out of the four Gospels. He was a high-ranking Jewish leader uh, on the Jerusalem Council, but he was not in conjunction with. He was not in cahoots with the council that was against Jesus. 
And he would, one of, where his story kind of began was in the book of John, he would approach Jesus at night. He didn't want to go in the daytime. He didn't want to be seen by others, but he would approach him at night and he would ask him questions. He would begin to figure out who is this Jesus character. And then over time, he became a disciple of Jesus. He was a secret disciple of Jesus. And then here for the first time, in all of Joseph's story, he doesn't approach Jesus in the night. He approaches him in the daylight. He approaches him at the cross. And the, and the Gospel of Luke tells us that Joseph approached the cross seeking the kingdom of God. Now think about that for a moment. He approaches a corpse hanging on a tree seeking the kingdom of God. I believe personally, though the scripture doesn't give us insight to this, that Joseph knew and believed that this was not the end. I mean, Jesus did, after all, tell his disciples he was going to die and that he would rise three days later. I believe Joseph knew that. And so I say to you, look, come out of the shadows. Come into the light, church. Come and approach the cross of Christ. As you approach the cross of Christ, you will find the kingdom of God. And not only will you find the kingdom of God, you will also find freedom. You'll find freedom because all the mockery, all the shame throwing, all the sinful actions of your heart have been nailed to Jesus. They've been nailed to him. None of the wrath came onto the crowd. None of the wrath has come onto you or me. We are still living, breathing beings here in this life. We, we can often wonder, why hasn't God just ended me? Because of grace. And so all of God's wrath and fury have been placed on Jesus. There is freedom from sin. There is freedom from the fear of death. There's freedom from condemnation, freedom from guilt, freedom from shame. And all that is taking our society hostage right now has no power over you and me. It has none. Because those who have faith in Jesus have hope in that all their sins have died with Christ. All their fears have died with Christ. All their worries have died with Christ. All their anxieties have died with Christ. This means all punishment for our sins, past present and future have been perfectly dealt with in the cross of Christ. So you and I, by faith in Jesus, will never have to pay for our sins. There's never going to be a point in a time where we mess up or we screw up and that God goes, I'm disappointed and you know what? You owe me. That's never going to have to take place because it's all been accomplished in the cross of Christ. And so the disciples are sitting there waiting and, and hoping for the glory of God to come back to life. But he's lifeless. He's dead. But for us, we are hoping for the glory of God to come and bring us back home. So Jesus died. And he died so that and in his death, death seemingly wins. Satan seems to have the upper hand here. The enemy seems to be on top and God seems to just be left awestruck and powerless in this moment. And then the Sabbath comes the day of rest. Silence is poured out over all the land 
And death has really just kicked its feet up on the grave like an ottoman, dreaming of what it'll do since it has now defeated the Son of God. And what death and Satan don't know and understand is that the Father had been preparing a home, preparing a throne, a crown, a place of powerful reign for His Son, the King, the one He dearly loves. And though death and Satan seem to have won, the clock is ticking, and soon the throne, that seat, will be occupied by a living, breathing, victorious Savior, and His name is Jesus. And when Jesus takes a seat on that throne, He will kick up His feet on a footstool called the enemies of God. And one day He will put death and Satan to death forever. And unlike Jesus, neither death nor Satan will come forth from the grave. And as God's people, though the glory departed that sad and dark Friday night, the glory will return with power. And so for those of us who have faith in Jesus, His glory lives in us. It's alive in us. Christ in you, the hope of glory. But even more, we are to live our lives looking forward to the King who dwells in the heavens, who sits on the throne with full power, full glory. We are to long for Him, for Him to return and bring us into His perfection, into His eternal dwelling, glorious presence. And there, in His presence, there will be no more tears. There will be no more pain. There will be no more suffering. No more affliction. A real spiritual and physical creation that we will be able to behold forever and enjoy perfectly. And so the glory may have departed at the cross, but rest assured, it most certainly comes back to be with us forever. 